book of Exodus, second book of the law or second book of Moses, as some would express it, but Exodus chapter 12 and we'll look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, this is, as you know, the first month of our calendar year. What if someone were to come to you, let's say around July, and say that this is your new year? This is the beginning of your calendar. You would look at them and say, well, no, no, that's, that's not accurate. Our year doesn't begin until uh, January. So if someone comes to me in July and says this is a new year, I would think there was something wrong with them. But in actuality, as our, you know, January 1st is the recognized beginning of a new year for most nations, but for America, our actual beginning is in July. We recognize in July that that is the birth of our nation. So while others, we recognize that our civil year, our international year begins in January, for us as a nation, our formation is actually anchored in the month of July. Well, I choose July not because it's the month of our nation's birth, but I choose July because that is actually the seventh month of the year. And in the Jewish civil calendar, uh, the first month of the year is Tisher, which would actually be around September. And at the time that Moses is speaking to the congregation, it's really seven months into the new civil year into the new civil calendar. So it's, it would correspond to March slash April in our calendar, and uh, for the Hebrews, it would have been the month of Abib. Later, it's changed after the exile to Nisan. But it's, so here's what takes place. God tells uh, Aaron and Moses that from now on, the beginning of your year, is no longer Tisher. The beginning of your year is here. Now let me just kind of back up a little bit and understand and sort of explain the dynamics of the importance and the importance, I should say, of the Jewish civil calendar. The, the first month of the Jewish calendar was the month of Tisher or Tishri. And it corresponds, as we mentioned, to the month of September. And September corresponds to the season or the beginning of the harvest. And therefore, at least support, according to most Jewish calendars, the time of the harvest was not only a time for gaining or uh, gleaning the fields and taking all of the fruits from the previous year's sowing and enjoy it and, and, and what is called the ingathering, but there were also a series of, of religious festivals and rituals. And in doing so, what God's covenant people were doing was recognizing that God indeed is the God of the harvest. And not only is he the God of the harvest, 
God of the harvest has providentially provided everything that is necessary for a time of harvest. So therefore, the idea was you begin the year by reaping God's harvest. And that really was intended to set the pace for the upcoming year. It was the idea of recognizing starting the year off by receiving God's harvest from the field. And it was a way of, number one, recognizing God's lordship over all of creation and our obligation to worship him because he is the giver and the sustainer of life. Now, the idea or the concept, the very concept, of beginning the year in a posture of praise and thanksgiving is, 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 is uh, to God is really part of what we would call natural revelation. In other words, it naturally, naturally belongs there because it is a recognition. We start the year off by saying, Lord, you are the one who provide the bread on our tables and it is in you that we will trust for our bread in the days to come. But that's really natural. And the reason I say it's natural, because it corresponds to the order of creation. If you know the book of Genesis, we know that God created the physical material world in the first five days. On the sixth day, he created man. And on the seventh day, before man is to start all of his work in the fields, the seventh day is the day of rest. In other words, man is supposed to rest before he goes to work. He is to rest in the knowledge that God, everything that he is, is about to take care of, has come from God. It is a reminder that God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. It is a reminder that his work is due unto God and what he is receiving from the fields has come forth from the hand of God. So there is a sabbatical or sabbatarian connection to this. That before he goes into the fields for his labors, he is to pause in the presence of God and to give him thanks for everything that he has created. And so therefore, the Sabbath is a time to rest in God, reflecting on him and all that he is and all that he has given. And that comes natural. It should be, so in other words, what should take place before one goes into the fields and goes to do the Lord's work is a recognition that all we are doing is God's work in God's place. So therefore, it made sense that the harvest was a good place to start the new year. The harvest was a way of reminding one that even though they had worked the fields in doing different things, the fruit that comes from the tree is not because of them. They are only the laborers. Joyce Kilmer gave us this wonderful little children's poem that poems are made by fools like you and me, but only God can make a tree. Beginning the year in the harvest was a way of reminding the one who worked so hard because sometimes we get it confused, especially when we have a God who is invisible and we start thinking that everything that we do is because of us and we start celebrating, if not idolizing and worshiping either our work or our career as if everything is being held up 
by us. I don't know if you remember the, I think it was a Disney cartoon about the, the rooster called Chanticleer, and Chanticleer was the rooster who, who crowed, and he thought his crowing made the sun come out. And Chanticleer would, was, in fact, he was so convinced of it, he was a little arrogant about it. And all of the other animals on the farm, they were a little irritated at Chanticleer because he was always making it known that he is the one who brings the sun out. Well, you can't do that with animals, human or otherwise, too long without somebody getting upset. Ask Joseph what happens when you brag. And so Chanticleer was all full of himself about his ability to bring up the sun by his crowing. And so his animal friends got together and they fooled him. And they made him oversleep. And he woke up. And he woke up in a panic. Primarily because when he woke up, the sun was already out. And at that point, his world fell apart. Because he felt he had no more purpose in life because now he's been exposed as not having the power to cause the sun to rise. And then they had to make him understand you have a purpose, you just don't make the sun come out. (laughs) God gives man the Sabbath before he goes to work because the longer he works, the more he thinks he owns it. God begins the new year, the the civic year or the civic calendar oftentimes with the harvest so that you recognize that you're going into the year receiving what God has given and you're not the cause of it. We know that God calls us to work within his created order. We know that there's purpose for it. But ultimately, as Paul says to the Corinthians, we understand that God gives us the privilege of sowing, and he gives another one the privilege of watering, but it is only God who gives the increase. So harvest is a good time to nurture appreciation, appreciation for what we have received in the created order, and it's a good time to reckon or to, to express trust in God. And so they begin the year recognizing God is the one who has provided all things from the fields. And it's a good way of, of nurturing trust in God for the year that is to come. So just as Adam was to begin his labor after reflecting on and rejoicing in the creator and the work of the hand of the creator... The harvest season was the beginning of the new year. And I think the point can be made that the worship and the trust uh, that is induced by the harvest was not only a way of recognizing God's lordship over all things, but it was a good way to really begin the year and shape one's mindset for the year. Because whatever, however great or small the harvest is, it has come from the hands of God. And our labor is simply in conjunction with what God himself is doing. So therefore, I think the idea of worship that is induced by the harvest is a good thing. And it is part, as we mentioned earlier, of our natural response to 
natural revelation. Now, here's what I mean by natural revelation. Paul in Romans chapter 1, in verses 19 through 21, he says, What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived uh, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, speaking of man, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, brothers and sisters, so as I go back to my opening uh, statement and my opening observation concerning the beginning of the Jewish civil calendar, it began with Tishri, which was the month of harvest. And in a, way, in a world of natural revelation, the harvest is a reminder that there's a God of the harvest. It is a reminder that the God of the harvest is over all things and everything that we have comes from him and we are dependent upon him and we should trust him in the days that unfold. But therefore we know also there is sin. And because of the fact of sin, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 1, he reminds us that what should be known by, about God from what he has naturally provided and revealed should cause us to honor him as God. But here's the reality. Every harvest season does not cause sinful men to worship God as the giver of the harvest, nor does it cause men to honor him and trust him for all that they stand in need of. He is indeed the Lord of the harvest, but all men who receive of his harvest do not recognize that he is the Lord of the harvest. It's for this reason that we see in our text that what the Lord does is he gives us a new starting place. So in our text, here's what the Lord tells Moses and Aaron. He says, this month shall be the month of beginnings. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, this was the spring, as we indicated. The beginning of their calendar year would have been during the fall or the autumn. And so, therefore, it would have been in conjunction with, the, with, the, with, the, with September or so. When Moses is speaking these words, it's during the month of, of, of approximately March or April. Uh, and, and here's what's interesting. The word, the, the, the English uh, or the Hebrew word for that time of month or that month is abib, abib. And the word abib means an ear of corn or the month or of, new, of newly ripened grain. Harvest is when the grain is ready. This abib is referring to grain that has not yet, is not yet ready to be harvested, but it refers to a new growth. And the idea is that this month, this month of April slash March, would be the beginning of their new ecclesiastical year. Now notice the difference here. 
The civil calendar begins with the harvest and corresponds to God's work in creation and providence. So who ought to give worship or praise to God for the harvest? Everyone who receives of the harvest. Because this is universal. This is providential. This is part of God's common grace. So therefore, the calendar year, everyone who has a harvest or benefits from the harvest should be celebrating the beginning of the year, and they should, even though they don't, they should be looking into the new year, anticipating God's sovereign care and recognizing and responding to it in worship and praise. So the civil calendar begins with the harvest corresponding to God's work in creation and providence. The ecclesiastical, and you understand the word ecclesiastical refers to the congregation of God, which is where we get our term for church, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So in a church sense, the calendar year doesn't begin with the harvest. It begins in the spring or the time of new beginnings. In fact, the new year, and that's, that's the correspondence of the word uh, abib and the actual time of year. And of course, we know that ultimately what takes place in the spring of the year is when Christ himself is crucified. That's why his crucifixion, his death, burial, and his crucifixion or his, his, and, and his resurrection corresponds to this time of the year. And basically what God is saying that, that even as the harvest and the fruitfulness of the harvest should shape one's mindset for the coming year, for the people of God, our new year ought to be fueled and shaped by the knowledge of redemption. You see, the calendar year or the civil year begins with natural revelation or it begins with common grace. But the ecclesiastical year begins with God's work of redemption. And just as the harvest was to shape their mindset for the new year, so the redemption, God's work of redemption, was meant to be the lens through which God's redeemed people would view the events and the experiences that were brought on by the new year. Now, with that in view, what I want to do is glean from some of the things that are also recorded in this 12th chapter of Exodus, and I want, want to take what the Lord says to Moses as it relates to the redeeming of his people, and this applies to us, that as we begin this civil year, let us do it from the table where we understand the beginning of our ecclesiastical year. And that being the case, there are three truths that are reaffirmed in this new year. And by the way, for us, every time we come to the Lord's table, it's like New Year's. And so when we come to the Lord's table, let us be guided by three things that should help us as we interact with the realities and the experiences of the civil year that is before us. Because if we are not careful and if we are not conscious and intentional, in what, in what shapes our view of the events that unfold in this year will be lost in our politics. We will be lost in our cultural moment. We, we will be lost by a number of things and we will forget who we are and whose we are. Three things. 
Number one, as we enter into the Lord's new year, let this guide you, that you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's, that's number one. Verses 12 and 13. As, as here's what, what the Lord is preparing Moses and Aaron to do. He is preparing them to institute the Passover. And this will now be their mark. This will be their new identity. This is their new birth. That you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Verses 12 and 13 in particular where we see the details of the means of their redemption. Beginning in verse 12, it says, um, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. Let the beginning of the year remind you that you are redeemed. Whatever else you are, and hold in mind that when the children of Israel left Egypt, it wasn't just Israelites. We are told elsewhere that it was a mixed congregation. But whoever it is that survived and whoever it is that is a part of this company have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So whatever else defines us, whatever other allegiances we have, here's what should shape our ecclesiastical year that should guide us into our civil year that whatever else you are, you are redeemed. You are redeemed. You have been set free from bondage. You're no longer a servant to Egypt. You are no longer identified first and foremost by those secondary things. Your primary mark of identity is you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, when you go back home, when you go back to your jobs, when you root for your favorite team, whatever it is that divides you along these secondary lines, what you are first and foremost is you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You have been set free from the clutches of Egypt. You have been set free from the Adam that held you in captivity. You are set free from the powers of darkness. You have been redeemed, and here's how you have been redeemed, the blood of the Lamb. And so just as the harvest was to remind the natural people that God is the one who has provided all that you have needed, God is the one who has supplied the sun, the rain, the know-how to work the fields. It is God. It, he, God is the one who has put life in the seed, and God is the one who has brought fruit from the trees. Likewise, God, who is the creator of those natural things, is the creator of new spiritual life in you. And the means by which you have that new spiritual life is the blood of the Lamb. The Exodus chapter 12 is not just about historical event that took place with, this, with these lambs. It was a picture of the Lamb of God who was to come. Here's what should guide us in the civil year that is ahead. We don't know. There's so much that we don't know. 
Amen. There's so much that we don't know. We're worried about taxes. We're worried about insurance. We're worried about a lot of things. In fact, not only is it worry, some of us are excited about a lot of things. Whatever it is, whatever either worries you or whatever it is that, that, you know, that floats your boat, whatever it is that makes you feel good, here, wrap it around this. You, whatever else you are, are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And what that means is judgment has passed. The judgment of God has passed. So we are not headed down some apocalyptic path because the judgment of God has passed. God is not mad at you. He is already taking care of that issue in the blood of the Lamb. Here's what should guide us. Here's what should shape our thinking as we enter into this space and time, as we enter into the experiences that are before us. Whatever else we are, whatever else we are concerned about, you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And the blood is applied to you. And the Father sees you continuously through the blood. Yes, you're redeemed. And here's how you have been redeemed, by the blood of the Lamb. You need to know that you are redeemed, and you need to know how you are redeemed, because somebody's going to be trying to sell you something down the line in 2020, in your down moments, trying to give you something else that's better than the blood. Somebody's going to try to slap some oil on you. Someone's going to try to do something else, give you a cloth, give you a prayer to pray, a formula to say. But here's what you need to know going into the year that should equip you for all of the challenges that you face in the year. You, my brother, you, my sister, are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. No accuser can take that from you. You can't take that from you. The Father has delivered you from the hand of the enemy, and he's done it by the blood of the Lamb. Here's what should guide us as we head into 2020 and whatever unfolds. We are the blood-bought children of the Most High God. We are his. And you say, well, I, I don't feel like it. And someone, somebody's going to lean to some other lineage as being so important. It's not your family tree. It's Calvary's tree that helps you put your family tree in its proper perspective. You are redeemed. And the means by which you are redeemed is the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by the blood of of the lamb. Here's the second thing. Not only are you redeemed by the blood of the lamb, but you have been united by the blood of the lamb. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, here's what the Lord says. He, uh, he, he reminds them on, he says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Here's the way this thing was projected. It was presented, in fact, there are other instructions included here, that if a family was too small and a lamb was too big, then you unite with another family so that you can bring them in. But here's what, was, what, what took place. It was a coordinated event. So even though it was several lambs slain in several places, in the eyes of God, it was only one lamb. 
And what that meant is that everyone who benefited from that lamb was united in one body. We need to be reminded of that as we head into 2020, that you are united. Brothers and sisters, whoever, as Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord are in the body of the Lord. We know that there are, God knows there are way, there are, there are a whole lot of stuff that divides us. And in our Sunday school class, we've talked about primary and secondary differences. And there are some secondary things, everything from uh, church government to our a doctrine of the Lord's Supper, how it's to be received, who it's to be re- who's to receive it, whether it comes to baptism, those are secondary issues. And brothers and sisters, we will, we will be in heaven with some people that we have strong disagreements with in terms of who should be baptized. We are a Baptist church, and we believe that baptism is on the basis of one's profession of faith. But you know what? We could be wrong. And, uh, and, and our brothers who, and sisters who believe that baptism is to the new covenant, what circumcision was to the old covenant, they could be wrong. But here's where we agree on. We don't necessarily agree on who ought to be baptized and who should wait and how. We, we, and it's not even a matter of, of, of how one is baptized. I had to straighten out some, some Baptist brothers on this. They wanted to, to die on the hill. That immersion is the only way of baptism. Please, back up. That's a, nobody says that. No, baptism, the baptism that matters is the baptism of the Spirit. And so whether you dip, whether you dunk, whether you sprinkle, whether you throw the water at them, it doesn't matter how the water, how they are baptized. That's not the means. We don't believe that there's efficacy in physical baptism. But everyone that has the blood on their house Or in the New Testament, everyone to whom the blood has been applied to their heart. We don't know. We weren't there when it got there. We know that they look to the name of Jesus and they are sealed by the Spirit. And so we don't fight over that. Those are secondary issues. Brothers and sisters, just as there are secondary issues that divide us outside of our local congregations... How often have we allowed secondary issues to divide us within the context of our local congregation? Because we, y'all don't do this, or y'all don't, and somebody called me or didn't call me, or I heard you say, just add to the list. You know the things that we get our, our you know, we get, our, we get ourselves in, in, in a tither about. Look at the things that someone neglected me or someone, look at how it happens in the New Testament that, the, that, that some folks said their widows are being neglected. We can't let that divide us because we have been put together by the blood of Christ. And here's what Jesus says even about marriage. He wasn't just talking about marriage, but he's talking about everything that he himself has put together. Number one, he says what God has joined together, let no man put asunder then he also secondarily said concerning the congregation this is my church and upon this rock I'll build it and the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it let us enter into this year 
being reminded, not only are we redeemed by the blood of Christ, but we are united by the blood of Christ. We are brought together from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that we could be one in Christ. God has brought us together, not for ethnic pride, not for tribal pride. God has brought us together for the blood of his son so that we would rejoice in it. And whoever is covered by that blood, we are at one with them. Let 2020 be marked by an effort to seek the peace with those that are also cleansed by the blood of the Father or the Son. Here's what we see, that when they sacrificed the Lamb, and we see this also even in the New Testament, everything was coordinated in such a way that at the very same moment, the lamb, even though it was in different parts of the, of the, of, uh, in the area, in different houses, the lamb that met the same specifications was sacrificed at the same time. And here's why. Because in God's mind, in the eyes of God, what he is doing is vindicating his firstborn because his challenge to the pharaoh of Egypt is because you refuse to let my firstborn go, I am going to slay your firstborn. And so God sees his judgment as against all of those who are associated with the seed of the serpent. And he is redeeming everyone who is associated with the seed of the woman. And he sees us not in our constituent parts. Yes, I like what one preacher says, that he calls us one by one. But he calls us as one. He calls us through different ways. He puts individuals in our paths so that we would hear the voice of his grace. But he makes us one. Some, uh, someone said recently, well... You know, I'll start thinking better, different towards people where as soon as the Lord puts it on my heart. No, no, no. Lord doesn't have to do anything else for us to operate as one other than what he's already done. And what he has already done is he has made us one in Christ. The blood that redeems us, unites us. So therefore we can go as one body in Christ. Paul says in Romans that we have many parts, many members, but there's one body. And there's one body and there's one head. There are many members. We have individual fingers. You have individual toes, but no toe is a body. If you just see a toe somewhere, you're looking for the body. Or trying to avoid finding the body. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, let us enter the new ecclesiastical year. Focusing on the fact that those of us who have redeemed, have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, have been united by the blood of the Lamb. Trust me, the year is going to challenge our unity in our churches, in our communities, as we deal with issues and different things, it's going to challenge it. But let us enter into this year knowing 
that we stand as one before the Father. Because one blood has been shed to make us one in Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we individually are being brought into unity into the body of Christ. And he is building us up to be a holy habitation in the Lord. Well, That brings me to a third and final thing. Let us be mindful as we head into this civil year as we are guided by the ecclesiastical year, that we are not home yet. We have, been, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been united by the blood of the Lamb, but we are not home yet. In verses 8 through 11, it gives instructions on how they are to eat this meat that has been sacrificed so that they could get the blood to cover the houses. And we are told that they are to roast it in a particular way, but it's in verse 11 in particular that I want to focus on. In verse 11, it says this, and it reminding us that we are surely not home yet. It says, uh, beginning in verse, uh, yeah, in verse 11, it says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Why is that? They, they, they are to be, because right now they are eating it in haste on this night because they're about to be set free. So they're eating their meal before they hit the road. But when they hit the road, they're going to be eating it in tabernacles instead of permanent dwellings because they're still not home. And then in a sense, even when they enter into the promised land and they have more permanent structures in which they will be living, they will still be eating it in haste because the writer of Hebrews tells us that the land that the Lord promised them was not Canaan. That wasn't the final rest. The final rest was yet to come. So no matter where you are in this journey, you are not home. So don't get discouraged and then at the same time, don't get overly consumed because of your portion of this vineyard which is only passing away. You are not home. There are going to be things that will happen and things that we will experience that will question, that will some will, call, will cause some to question the very substance of their faith. But hold in mind, you're not home. Look unto, eat it, whatever you do from the Lord, receive it. Understand it's with your shoes on and with your loins girded because you're nothing more than a pilgrim until the Lord returns. I think sometimes we get disappointed in certain institutions because we're expecting eternal value from something that has a termination date on it. But understand... We have been redeemed by the blood. We have been united in the blood. And whatever else we experience in this life, we're still not home. And so therefore, we don't get discouraged over what we don't have. And on the other side of that, we don't get too cocky about what we do have. Because whatever we have or don't possess, we're not home yet. We have been called to serve, we have been called to worship, honor, and glorify, 
But we are marked for a better existence, and that existence hasn't happened yet. And so whatever it is we experience in this calendar year, let it be guided by what we are reminded of in the ecclesiastical year. We are, as Peter says to the audience to whom he writes, we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are a long way from home, but we are the ambassadors of a greater kingdom and a greater king. Let us never get be too much at home, and let us not strive for the things that are passing, assuming that it is home. God tells the children of Israel, I'm going to set you free, and when you eat this meal, eat it in haste, because you're not home. One of the beautiful things that we get in the words of institution when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my cup that, that, that has been shed for you. But I'm not going to drink it with you now. But I will drink it with you when we come together in my Father's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, as long as we are down here, the Father feeds us with the blood and the bread or the flesh of the Son. We eat from the bread, we drink from the cup, but it, what it tells me is that when Jesus comes, whatever else is going to take place in his coming, whatever else is going to happen, whatever the end times will be, at the end of it all, there's going to be a party, and Jesus will drink with us. We're not home. We are redeemed and we are united, but we're not home. So we don't get overly anxious of what we don't have. And we don't get overly caught up in what we do have because we're not home. No matter how bad it is, there's something better. And no matter how good it is, there's something better because we're not home. I pray that as we enter into this new civil year, that we are guided by the things that are communicated in the beginning of our month. And the beginning of our month or the, the month that begins our year is what's set before us in the table of the Lord. Because the, the feast that they celebrated in Exodus 12 was the Passover. And here's what Paul tells us. Christ is our Passover. And so let us eat and be reminded that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Look around you and whoever receives, we are united by the blood of the Lamb. Let that guide us. And brothers and sisters, whatever else, we're not home. We're on our way. Let's pray. Father, we again.